Ethical Dilemmas for Patients and Doctors When Dealing with Adult-Onset Genetic Diseases. You're listening to ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining me today is Dr. Robert Klitzman, the Associate Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at the Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons. He co-founded and for five years co-directed the Columbia University Center for Bioethics and is currently the Director of Ethics and Policy Corps of the HIV Center. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. I'm pleased to be here. To begin with, Dr. Klitzman, once a patient knows that they have a genetic disease, where do they go to deal with that kind of information? Well, after being told that you are at risk, right, you have a few choices. One, whether you should get testing. Two, who else you should tell. Three, should you change what you do in terms of health behaviors, either in terms of prevention or treatment? So those are, or four, should you do anything else differently in your life, right? And, of course, it varies here by disease, by the severity and treatability of the disease, by the presence of other symptoms that may be nonspecific, but if you know your risk may influence how you look at those symptoms. So there are people who decide when they find out they're at risk, some may decide, yes, I should get tested. There the question is, a lot of genetic counselors think an important question is for patients to understand, to think in advance, what would they do if they get information, either yes or no? So I may find out I'm at risk of Huntington's and say, God, I should go get tested. I go get tested. I find out I'm positive. That means that I have a limited lifespan that I'm going to start to, I may well develop symptoms of psychosis and motor difficulties when I'm in my, say, say my father died in his late 40s or mid-50s. That's the age that I'll die or have symptoms around then. Uh, should I quit my job? Should I decide I want to, you know, spend all my money now rather than saving it for the future? Should I, you know, decide what I really always want to do was not to work on Wall Street but to uh, you know, write a novel? Should I go do that? So there are lifestyle issues that are involved. On the other hand, people may not think about this in advance and may say, oh, my God, I'll go get tested and then not think about what that means. And, oh, my God, I have a death sentence, someone may think, and not have thought through it. Some people may blurt it out. Oh, my God, I better tell my kids. So I told my 12, 13-year-old kids, you know, God, you know, I may have this disease and, or I have this disease and you may get it uh, and die of it. And, of course, at 12 or 13 or whatever age, we know that people have different developmental abilities to understand this information and arguably to have this hanging over a kid who will be fine for 20, 30 years is not psychologically beneficial. It may have a lot of harm. So, uh, again, these are, again, complicated issues. With breast cancer, people who find out that they have the gene, the mutation, that is, some women decide, you know, I, I have seen that breast cancer has devastated my mother and my sister and my cousin and my grandmother, and I, I have the gene. I want to have my breasts removed prophylactically, even though I have no symptoms, and I want to have ovaries removed because there's an increased risk of ovarian cancer. So a lot of women decide to have prophylactic surgery of prophylactic mastectomies and ovophorectomies, and these are not benign procedures. No surgery is. So some women are deciding to do this. Other women don't know what to do. Some women decide, no way do I want to have that done, and they'll take the risk of developing cancer. So again, there's a range of very complicated decisions that are being made, and, and I've been looking, doing research on how people make these decisions, and they're very complicated. As, as I've written about in my book, 
when doctors become patients, which looked at how doctors deal with issues when they become patients, doctors realize that there's a lot of issues that they don't really think about until they become patients themselves, dealing with uh, the complicated psychological and social issues involved with having an illness, the ways in which we doctors are trained to think of risks and benefits may not be the way that a patient thinks of risks and benefits. Patients, when push comes to shove, may feel that the risks of surgery are much worse than they than a doctor may think, or that they may decide they want to be more risk-averse than a doctor may think they want to be. And so we know that individual patients weigh risks and benefits for themselves in unique ways. And the way I, as a clinician, weigh risks and benefits or think that a patient does or should weigh risks and benefits may be different from that way that patient does. Patients may decide to take more risk or less risk. They may decide, well, I don't want any risk. Even though I have no female relatives, I want to have prophylactic surgery done, or no female relatives who have had symptoms and I haven't, uh, for instance. So, again, these are complicated issues that a lot of factors are involved in, uh, how much risk I want to live with, how much guarantee I want of health, Will I follow up with more vigorous monitoring if I don't have surgery done, et cetera? There's also reproductive questions, of course, which is if I know that I have a mutation, should I have kids? Should I not have kids? Should I have amniocentesis done in which the fetus is pregnant? We can uh, have cells withdrawn from the amniotic sac and diagnose those. People are also deciding to have pre-implantation genetic diagnosis done, which is something else I've recently been publishing some research on, which is when there's a fertilized egg done through in vitro fertilization, it goes from one cell to, from, you know, sperm meets egg, one cell embryo to two cells to four to eight. At the eight stage level, we can remove one of the cells and we can now diagnose it for 2,200 different things. So we can say, women can say, couples can say, you know, I don't want any embryos implanted in me if they have the gene for Huntington's or the gene for breast cancer or the gene for anything else. People are also saying, I don't want any female embryos. I only want a male embryo. I only want a boy, or I only want a girl. So people are beginning to design embryos in a way, and that raises another set of ethical issues. But certainly in terms of relevance for our topic here today, people who find out that they're at risk, and particularly people who find out they have a mutation, face difficult reproductive decisions, if they're of reproductive age, about what to do. And some are deciding to screen embryos for this mutation. Some decide, hey, you know, I am at risk of Huntington's, but I've lived 45 great years. That's fine for a child if I pass the mutation on. So what if my child has the, the gene, he or she can live for 45 good years? That's fine. On the other hand, some parents are afraid, God, if I don't have this done, what if my child has the HD gene and is mutation and is very mad at me? I wish you would screen for this. Or down the line, if everyone else is getting screened for a particular genetic disease, what if I don't have my children screened? Are they going to face extra stigma? Because people say, why didn't your parents screen for that? So again, these are very complicated ethical and social and often legal issues that clinicians are going to have to start I would argue, be more aware of because patients may be raising them. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. And I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I'm speaking with Dr. Robert Klitzman, Associate Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons. And we're talking about a process of disclosure having to do with the adult onset inherited disease, Huntington's disease. 
What's so unique about this discussion we're having is that you're right. People can live a full, normal life before the disease begins to cause the deterioration that we will see. Pregnant women, for example, who have had an opportunity to see the devastation of the disease in a parent may not make the decision that you think they will. They may say exactly what you just said. My father or mother had a wonderful life. I'm always reminded when I think about this disease of Woody Guthrie. There's a foundation in his name, and I certainly grew up when I was in medical school. This land was made for you and me. It was something that I certainly heard over and over again. And here is a man who had a disease that lasted and, of course, ultimately caused him to be hospitalized initially for schizophrenia. And, of course, he had uh, Huntington's, just as his mother had uh, some 30 years before and had been hospitalized in a mental hospital. And uh, like you said earlier in our discussion, here was an example of uh, somebody in your family having the disease and you don't even know it. I'm intrigued, too, before we leave this topic is that, yes, the chromosome was noted in 1993. Chromosome 4 was the abnormality, and we waited with anticipation for a cure. Now, last year, somebody thinks, or several people, have identified a protein and a possible mechanism for the disease. Is this going to change how we look at this disease and the kind of advice we're going to give? In terms of a cure maybe being available. That's right. Yes. Well, I would argue that in many ways, the amount of stigma that is associated with the disease is somewhat related to how treatable it is. So if there's something that's very treatable and you can take a pill and it goes away, no one really knows, it's not very stigmatized, or hopefully it's not. Where if something goes on and it has frightening-looking symptoms or symptoms that some people get frightened by and there's no good treatment, there may be more stigma. So, And of course, we also know that there's treatment and there's cure, and there's good treatment and not so good treatment. In the case of alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, there is a treatment, prolacin, but it costs $20,000 a year at least. And so a lot of people don't have insurance or can't afford that, et cetera, and there are problems. We can't always predict when, even when we know a mechanism, when we will find a good treatment for it. So there are mechanisms for disease that we understand where we don't have a cure which is because we know what the protein is, does not necessarily mean, I mean, hopefully it means that we'll find a cure soon, but some of our most effective treatments are for things that we arrived at serendipitously. We didn't know the mechanism and we found something that works. Conversely, there may be times when we know how something works, and, and, but to be able to intervene at a, at a micro level in a cellular system is quite difficult, of course, and then to intervene without other side effects occurring that could be bad. So look at cancer, where we know, I would argue, quite a bit, not everything, but quite a bit about mechanisms of what's going on once a cell is cancerous. But we still, it, we have limited treatments in terms of chemotherapy for a lot of cancers. So again, I would hope that a cure for Huntington's is around the corner. However, it's important to be a realist sometimes. And the fact is that though hopefully one is around the corner, it may not be. It may take longer. Maybe it'll take two years or maybe it takes 20 years, maybe longer than that. So you know, I think we need to be able, in the meantime, deal with how to deal with these very difficult decisions of whether to test or not, whether to have children or not, etc. And the availability of in vitro fertilization and assisted reproductive technologies has meant that we can now, as I said, screen embryos in different ways, and that raises a whole other set of issues of do we want to? Do we not want to? Should I get rid of the gene? On the other hand, what does that mean if I'm getting rid of a mutation that I myself have? What does it say about me and my value system? So 
again, these are difficult individual decisions, and it's difficult, I think, to have a one-size-fits-all approach. I think that discussion of these issues and understanding a patient's values and, and fears and concerns are important. I should add, finally, there, there's also moral and religious issues here. So, of course, some people are against abortion. Some people may have very strong feelings about pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. There are people who say, look, it's all in God's hands. If my child has Huntington's or this gene or that gene mutation from me and gets it or doesn't get it, it's all in God's hands. Who am I to interfere with it? I want to thank Dr. Robert Klitzman for being our guest today. And we've been discussing disclosure in the difficult problems of Huntington's disease. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at ReachMD.com, register with promo code, quote, radio, unquote, and receive six months free streaming for your office or home. If you have comments or suggestions, please call us at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening.